You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. Acts 11, 19 to 30, and chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in the days of now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Abigus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is the word of the Lord, and it is given to to our church for our good. Well, good morning. It is uh, a great honor uh, and joy to be here with you this Sunday and to preach God's Word. And um, yeah, like Kyle said, my name is Phil, and I hail from the east side of Hamilton, an area called Stony Creek, and uh, I'm a member of um, New City Hamilton, so that's where I come from. To be with you, um, let me just pray before we dig into our text this morning. Our great Father, we thank you for your love and your kindness and generosity in sending your Son, Jesus and in doing the great work of dying and rising and reigning, even today, right now, and sending your Holy Spirit, who is with us and fills us right now, would you come and illumine our eyes and open our ears so that we can see your word and see wonderful things so that we can truly serve you in this generation. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I want to tell you the story of an old church that you might not have heard of before, or if you did, maybe only in passing. I want to tell you the story of a church that was born, sustained, moved, and multiplied because ordinary people, 
like you and me, were gripped by the gospel of God. I want to tell you the story of the church in Antioch, which we read about in this morning's text, uh, particularly Acts 11, 19 to 30, but also a bit from Acts 13, 1 to 3. So I want to ask you to have your Bibles open. We're going to dig into this passage this morning. Um, so feel free to take notes. Um, perhaps the Lord will use this time to enrich and equip you. Antioch was a place where, when we first come to it in this part of Scripture, a place where there was no gospel. But by the end, turns out not only to be a place where there's gospel ministry, but a launching pad for worldwide missions. After Jerusalem, Antioch becomes Gospel Hub 2.0 for the world. And Luke the Evangelist paints a busy but compelling picture of an active, gospel-driven church. Before we dive in, I just want to tell you a little bit of the lead-up of how we get to Acts 11. Because by the time we get to Acts 11, the action is in high gear. Since Pentecost, Jesus' once fearful followers uh, have been turned into courageous witnesses. The, the, the Spirit comes down with incredible power on them at Pentecost, and they can feel it in their bones, not just in their brains. The gospel is not an idea for them. It is the very life and person of Jesus pulsing through them and causing them to reach out to other people. Peter and John's words are characteristic of the book of Acts, and hopefully for us as well. They say we can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard. And so in Acts 1 to 11, the gospel breaks out of the confines of Judaism, out of Jerusalem, into Judea, into pagan and untouchable Samaria, and now the cities of Caesarea and the rest of the world. And so one preacher rightly says someone has put his foot on the accelerator big time by the time we get to Acts 11. In the last two chapters, Peter marvels that God has granted repentance even to the Gentiles, even to people who had never heard or who had not been part of Judaism before. They had not heard of the God of the Bible, had not belonged to God's people. They now receive the blessings of God's covenant. In Jesus, those who were no longer part of the old Judaic covenant are fully welcomed in. People from every nation, every culture, ethnicity, and background in religion. And the Spirit is falling on them too. And that's where we are in Acts 11. If I sound excited about Acts already, it's because I've been thinking a lot about this book and kind of camping it in the last little while. Because I do believe that God is meaning to do a similar work in our time. A work of continuing the acts of the Holy Spirit, of expanding and growing His church, even in our neck of the woods, even here in southern Ontario, where the rumor is that the church is declining. Don't believe the rumor. I believe that God means to grow the church here in our area as well. I believe God means to grip us afresh this morning as we turn to Jesus once again and see what he means to do with us as a church. So let's open our Bibles. Acts eleven 19. I'll read the first couple of verses there. It says, Now those who had been scattered because of the persecution that took place over Stephen went as far as Phoenicia, which is Lebanon, Cyprus, Antioch, speaking the message, listen, to no one but Jews. But there were some men from Cyprus and Cyrene among them who came to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also. 
proclaiming the good news of the Lord Jesus. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Luke gives us four marks, four features of this church in Antioch. Their witness, the first one is witness, the second is discipleship, the third is mercy, and the fourth is mission. First, witness. These are ordinary people talking about Jesus. In, in this first portrait of the church, we, we see ordinary people talking about Jesus. The pressure of persecution drives them out of the area that they were in and into new places. It's not their choice. They're driven because of the persecution that was over Stephen when he was put to death. So because of that, even under God's sovereignty, because of persecution, the gospel is spreading geographically. We've already talked about that. And so they go to Antioch, uh, a city that was called the Queen of the East. It was everything in the ancient world that we've now come to expect of large, cosmopolitan, diverse cities. It was the capital of Syria. It was a base for the Roman military. It was in an ideal location. Its highways crossed north, east, and west. It was pluralistic. It had Greeks, Romans, and Arabic people Egyptians, Africans, Indians, and Asians, all called Antioch home. It was also very idolatrous. Antioch housed temples for the Greek deities, uh, particularly Zeus, Apollos, and Astarte. Cult prostitution and sexual immorality was rife. In the ancient world, the joke went that after Corinth, there was Antioch in terms of its idolatry and immorality. And Luke just reports that those disciples go into, they dare go into, go into Antioch to speak the message of Jesus. They leave rural Galilee and they go to that place. And notice what they do. They cross cultural boundary lines, don't they? What does it say there? They, these particular men in verse 20 speak to Greeks also. They proclaim the good news of Jesus to them as well. They talk about Jesus indiscriminately across cultural boundaries. They were bold, inclusive, and by their cultural standards, even reckless in the way they, dis they transgressed the identity boundaries of the ancient world. And who do they proclaim? Don't pass over these words very quickly. The Lord, the Lord Jesus. The gospel is the offer of a Lord and Savior, his name is Savior. Jesus means Savior. And Lord, that is, we pass by that all too quickly. To proclaim Him as Lord means to say that there are no other lords. Caesar is not the ultimate Lord. All the gods and deities of their time and ours are not lords. Jesus is Lord and He is Savior. He is the one who comes to liberate and save from bondage from the threat of spiritual powers beyond our control, a Lord who could truly meet their deepest needs. Him they proclaimed. And the, the Greek literally says they good news eyes. <laughs> they proclaimed Jesus. They proclaimed that Jesus is the King, the risen Lord. Perhaps they were laughed at. Like Paul tells us that the Greeks considered the Lord crucified, Jesus crucified as foolishness, a foolish message. Perhaps they were heckled at 
Perhaps they were just dismissed. But some responded. And that is the amazing thing. But I want you to also notice that Luke doesn't tell us who these people are. He gives us no names. These are anonymous disciples. Just like you and I. Ordinary disciples of Jesus. Their outreach efforts would have ripple effects for generations to come. But we know nothing about these men and women. If you've ever wondered if you can make a difference for Jesus in the small ways that you do, in the way that you speak, speak about him in your life, at work, to your neighbors, to your kids, these might seem like small ways to you. But if you've ever wondered, remember the disciples who went to Antioch. No celebrities here, friends. No people with big, famous names. No people who've wrote, written books or published. They were just lay people, we might call them. No clergy, no professionals. Just run-of-the-mills Christian who love Jesus Christ and love the good news of the gospel. And so they go telling of what they've seen and heard. And I wonder if God's move, God's intended move in our time involves us, ordinary Christians, speaking. That's all it says. That when it actually says in the Bible there, when it says preaching in the ESV, that's not actually a great translation. It just says they spoke. They gossiped about Jesus. They talked about Jesus. That's Jesus, his name filled their lips and their conversations, and they loved to talk about him. And I believe that's what God means to do today. Now, I don't want to make dangerous assumptions. Um, we sometimes use the word gospel, and I think it might be good to remind ourselves, what is the gospel? What is this good news of Jesus that we give to the world? It might help, as you share it, to remember the gospel this way. The gospel is a person and an event. The person is Jesus Christ, who is God-man who is the God-man who has come to save us from our sins. He is a real man, a real person who lived in history and still lives in a body like ours and reigns and sits at the right hand of God. He has done all that we need for our salvation. And that's the event. He came. He was born. He lived a perfect life. And he died and rose again for my sins and for your sins and for the sins of the world. He died so that we don't have to be in shackles, afflicted, and in bondage to the sins of this world. He died to free us and to adopt us and to make us children. A name, a person, and an event. That's who he is. That's what the gospel is. And so that's what we share, friends. It's simple. But you can share that. Don't be afraid to share that. It is your call and your privilege to share that. But my question, too, this morning is, if you've heard this news, have you really responded to it yet? Have you turned around and thrown your weight on Jesus? Have you really said, Lord, you are my king, you are my savior. I will submit to you alone. Because that is the message and that is the call. That is the best news in the world. Your friends might not think that is good news, but give them time and as the Holy Spirit illumines their eyes, they will see that this is the news they are dying to hear. This is the news that God is using to bring the world right side up. 
And so, so much of this is not just about our salvation, but it's also about our mission. Just like these disciples, they went into the city, and over time, God transformed the city. It was slow. took generations. Well, in their case, (laughs) it was within their generation that they were sent out into the rest of the world. But God has used that over the last hundreds and thousands of years. Think of Christianity, this small little sect of once fearful disciples. And think of how God used that movement to grow it into the church, into Christianity that is today. That brings us to the next point. Look with me at verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them. Because this is God's work. This is his stamp of approval on when you and I share the message, the simple message of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. God's hand is with us. And it was with them. And many, it says, a great number turned to the Lord, believed and turned to the Lord. It's all for nothing if God is not at work among us. These disciples relied on the Lord, on his power to save, and he turned lives around to follow Jesus. You see, ultimately, no church planting. I need to remind myself of that as I read books about church planting. No multiplication strategy, no fancy planning or even finances. None of that can do what God alone can do, which is to grow his church. It's actually an impossible task humanly speaking. But God can do it because Jesus reigns. And we can pray. We can pray. Pray for your pastors. Pray for missionaries. And pray for yourselves that God would cause us ordinary Christians to move out. And so that's the first thing. Witness. Ordinary Christians talking about Jesus. Second, community. Look with me, verse 22 to 26, community, disciples who are fully devoted to Jesus. I won't read it all for the sake of time, but we'll walk through it. In the second part, we see that the report of what God has been doing in Antioch spreads. Good things happening in Antioch, and Mother Church, Jerusalem, decides to investigate what's happening in Antioch, rightly. And so they send this fellow by the name of Barnabas. And notice how the church submits to the discernment of Jerusalem. And so Barnabas arrives. Look at verse 23. Barnabas arrives, and what does he see? When he came, he saw grace. When he came and saw the grace of God, he rejoiced. He saw disciples devoted to Jesus, and so encouraged them to press on. He encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. What do you see when you look at your church? Do you see flaws and weaknesses and things that maybe aren't perfect? I have no doubt that Barnabas saw things that perhaps were less than ideal or less than perfect. Things that he could have complained about or sent a scathing report to the church in Jerusalem and said, Ah, they're amateurs. They have ways to go. But he had his priorities straight. And what does he report? He reports that they love Christ and his people. And he just says says there that he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. What else did he see? Barnabas saw God at work in the diversity of disciples that were, who were there. And that grace is, uh, is brought into focus in Acts 13, 1-3, that little passage that we read at the end. Uh, we might easily pass over those uh, verses, but that's the community that God is shaping there. I want you to picture the uh, table of fellowship of the Antioch pastoral team or lead team that is described for us at 13, chapter 13. 
We're told that beside Simeon, there was a man, uh, sorry, beside um, Barnabas the Cypriot, there was a man named Simeon who was called Niger, meaning he was black, a man of African origin. Next to him sat Lucius of Cyrene, also an African man from Libya. Beside him sat a man named Manan, a powerful person, an an aristocrat of the court of Herod, a man of establishment. You might call him a politician of sorts. And next sat Saul, who will be introduced into the story in just a moment, that fiery scholar preacher from Tarsus. That's a picture of the variety of people that God has brought into this church. They're not all alike. Strong personalities, various backgrounds, and I don't imagine it was easy for them to get along, but by God's grace, they must have achieved it. I think uh, this is a good reminder of uh, what Colossians 3.11 says, that here in Christ's church, there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, uneducated, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. The barriers come down because of the gospel. When the gospel is taught and preached, as we see in a moment, um, that's what happens. That diversity is born. And, and that's what we see in the next few verses because um, Barnabas begins to devote himself to the ministry of teaching and equipping this church. And instead of building this ministry of teaching and preaching around himself, he realizes there's so much work to be done. Look at what he does in the following verses in verse 26. He looks for another man and he looks for Saul. He looked at Saul and he went to his home in Tarsus and found him, saw a gospel opportunity and a gospel match. And he knew that a church might need a man like him. And he brings Saul back to Antioch. And it says in verse 26, they spend a whole year discipling the church, teaching, teaching them the faith, life in the kingdom, what it's like to follow Jesus, what it, what it means that God is redeeming the world and turning it right side up, what it means for you and I to be disciples of Jesus. Think Sermon on the Mount. Practical stuff. Down-to-earth stuff. They just taught them the ways of Christ. And they didn't do it over a weekend retreat or a member's class. They they devoted themselves to the Scriptures week in and week out on a daily basis. They proclaimed Christ. And now look with me at verse 26. It says there, It was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. That's a great way to wrap this description of the community of the church, isn't it? If you're wondering why it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians, I think we get a clue from what we've just seen. There's grace. There's teaching and discipleship. There's lives being transformed. There's diversity. There's barriers coming down. Something that the watching world would have marveled at. And so they nicknamed them. Apparently the Antiochians in the, old, uh, in the ancient times had a, a knack for nicknaming things and people. And so they nicknamed, nicknamed them little Christs, Christians, because they looked like Christ. I want to encourage you, friend, if you call yourself a Christian today, live by that name. It is often a People don't take that name seriously today. Treasure that name. You bear the name of Christ. 
Live like a Christian. Become who you are in Christ. And so if the gospel is driving us, we will look more and more like a community devoted to Jesus, living by His Spirit and under His Word. Third, mercy. Mercy is another mark. And we see that in uh, verses 27 to 30. We see Christians reaching out with the compassion of Christ. This man, um, in, in the context of worship and prayer, we get this man named Agabus. This fellow stands up and predicts by the Spirit that a famine would come over the inhabited world. Outside Scripture, historians tell us that this actually happened, happened during the reign of Claudius between 41 and 54 AD. A succession of bad harvests and serious famines hit various parts of the empire. And he, and he proclaims that this is going to happen, and particularly that it's going to have an effect on the church in Jerusalem. And the amazing thing for me is that this new church in Antioch doesn't just say, meh, so what? We'll pray for them. You know, we'll think about them. No, they take this prophet's word seriously. They are moved by the compassion of Christ and they devote themselves to, to collecting money to send to support this church, the mother church in Jerusalem. They care for their brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering. They don't just say, oh, we've we're just barely established ourselves. We don't have much to give. But no, they open their hearts with generosity, they set aside a contribution and they appoint Paul Barnabas this, uh, to send it to the elders in Jerusalem by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Mercy and compassion were a trademark of the early church. And we know that this was not unique. What is described in these few verses here was not unique. That was characteristic of the early church. They looked for the outcasts, the immigrants, the starving, the sick, the imprisoned. They toured the city's dumps to rescue abandoned babies. They kept their eyes, too, on their sister churches and supported them. As a new planter, it gives me great heart when I read passages like this. It reminds me that the church is not, that individual churches don't stand alone. We are meant to work together. That we are on a collective mission for Christ. And so we work together and we care about each other's need, needs. And uh, I think there's a beautiful picture here of the unity and the solidarity that Antioch shows to the mother church in Jerusalem by sending this gift with the hands of the elders. Compassion and mercy is the mark that God is calling to characterize my life and your life. Christianity is not just talk. It is Living with eyes open is praying with eyes open, aware of the needs of our neighbors, of our friends, and of the place that we live in. And I'm sure as a church that God is using you to do that, to look around you and to serve and meet the needs around us. In the name of Christ. Finally, worship and mission. And that comes out in uh, chapter 13, 1 to 3 as well. We see spirit-led believers stepping out in faith. It says there in 13, verse 2, that while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid, a, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. In this final snapshot, 
that Luke gives us of the church in Antioch, we see a church at worship. A church praying and fasting and singing, I imagine, in response to God's great grace in Christ. And so, as they pray and as they worship, they are driven to mission. It's an incredible thing. We don't typically think of worship driving us outward to serve and to participate in God's move of the gospel through churches and new churches being established. But that's exactly what happens here. I love how theologian uh, or a pastor John Piper puts it. He says missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because Jesus is not yet fully loved and treasured and worshipped and followed in every area of our city and province and country. And so the work continues. And it's not just, as we saw, it's not just for pastors and leaders, but it's for our entire churches. And so Antioch itself, that was just born as a mission, decides to pray fast and obey the call that the Spirit says to set aside these brothers. The, ish, the Spirit issues a call in verse 2. He says, Antioch, sisters and brothers, thousands more have not heard the gospel or seen the light of Christ. Will you go as missionaries to them? And so the Spirit said in verse 2, Set apart for me Saul and Barnabas for the work to which I have called them. Oh, wait a second. Set apart who? Saul and Barnabas? I can imagine some people going, really? Our best leaders? The guys who have, whom God has used to build and equip and teach this church? And that's what they do. That's what God does. They test the call. They pray. They fast. They lay hands to affirm and recognize that this call of God is genuine. And they send them out. This pattern continues today. Just a, a few weeks ago, I experienced the blessing of passing my last ordination exams, and in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, I will be laid hands upon as well to be sent out, um, much like these men, to continue to that work. 2,000 years later, friends, this work continues. Will you be part of it? Will you pray for it, support, and encourage it? And that begins this morning with you seeing the gospel afresh for what it is. It is good news, friends. It is good news. It is the power of God to save you and to transform you today. Maybe you're feeling stuck. Maybe you're, maybe you're, you're feeling stuck in, in certain habits of sin. Maybe you haven't been able to take that stride to really follow Christ where he's been calling you to. Maybe you've struggled to speak of him in your workplace. The gospel is the answer. You don't move past that. Go back and pray and ask, Lord, I want to see you and drill deep into it. Seek the holiness of your soul and of your life. Murray McShane, a Presbyterian pastor from the 1700s, has a great quote. If you take nothing else or remember nothing else from this morning, remember this quote. He says, there are two things about which it is impossible to desire with sufficient ardor personal holiness of life, and the honor of Christ in the salvation of souls. Will you desire that today? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you mean to do this work in us today. Would you 
Speak to us, soften our hearts, equip and strengthen us to follow you in this mission. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.